I want you all to know that you can take comfort in the fact that Kevin Tallickson pulled me aside saying that if I preach heresy, he was going to stand up and shout and let everybody know. <laughs> so if anybody was wondering if what I'm going to say is true or false, you can ask Kevin later and he will shout out whether or not that is the case. Also, if you have uh, kids who are in kindergarten through fifth grade, go ahead and send them on to the back for a children's church at this time. And if you're new here or visiting, feel free to just grab one of the ushers and they'll show you the way to be able to do that this morning. Without further ado, would you pray with me and for me as we begin to study God's word. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord, and that I would be the conduit and not the source. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. In 2014 and 2015, the Barna Research Group conducted a study in which they asked this, the people participating in the survey several different religious questions pertaining to the person of Jesus. Some of the questions had to do on whether people thought that he was an actual person. And to this, 92% of people who were surveyed thought that he was an actual person. And yet, when the questions moved to other topics, and they asked whether he was actually God, a great moral teacher, or they didn't know, the confidence began to drop. And interestingly enough, based off of generations, Ron, as you were praying for us to be able to have a country that follows after you and that we're slowly slipping away, interestingly enough, with each generation, there was a decrease in the confidence that Jesus was the Son of God. For anybody who was born before 1945, 62% of people believed that Jesus Christ was God. But as you move through the generations, things begin to doubt. The boomers, of the boomers' generation, only 58% believed that Jesus was God. Followed by Generation X, those between 1965 and 1983, only 55%. And finally, by the millennials, that only 48% of them believe that Jesus was God. 48% is still a lot, but you can see with each passing generation, there's a decrease in the level of confidence that we have as Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And regarding that, this morning I wanted us to be able to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27, in which Jesus asks his disciples the question, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Which is the title of our sermon this morning. And as he looks at, and as he asks his disciples that question, I want to be able to look at the answer to that question. As we go forth, we're going to look at four main points. We're going to look at how Jesus is the greatest prophet to ever live. We're going to look at how he is our great and high priest, how he is our great and coming king, and what he commands us to do. And if you missed all of those, too bad. Just kidding. No, we're going to come back to them later on. But if you would... Grab a Bible. There's some in the pew right in front of you. If you don't know where Luke chapter 9 is, too bad. Uh, just kidding. Ask the neighbor next to you and they'll be able to point you along. But uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now it says this. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and yet others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them that they must tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, yet on the third day be raised. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake 
will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Now, as we look at this question of who do you say I am, that's not the preliminary, the first question that Jesus asked his disciples. The first question that he asked is this, what's word on the street about me? Who do people say that I am? Who do the Jews think that I am as I'm going around and doing these mighty signs, preaching, prophesying, and teaching, and gathering a large following? And to that, his disciples responded saying, well, some of the people think that you are John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Others that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets from old. And it's interesting because John the Baptist was actually Jesus' cousin. And Herod had just recently put him to death. And when people think about Jesus and John being the same, they're not. Because near the end of John's ministry, before he was killed, of Jesus he said, he must increase, but I must, de- in- I must decrease. Referring to Jesus being the greater and John being the lesser of the prophets. So he wasn't John the Baptist. And yet other people thought that he was Elijah. Because at the end of Malachi, in the Old, in the Old Testament, right before the Old Testament concludes, in the fourth chapter of Malachi, it says this about Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So people at the time were thinking that Elijah would come possibly before Messiah or before the great and awesome day of the Lord occurred. So they were anticipating this. But Jesus never claimed to be Elijah. And he never claimed to be Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of the other prophets from the Old Testament. And this is because he is the greatest prophet to ever live. And no doubt the disciples were thinking about these questions as they walked with him. Because this is the middle of Luke right now, and right before this, Jesus had fed a multitude of 5,000 people with a few fish and a couple of loaves of bread. Jesus is somebody that is unlike anybody else that people had seen before. He was able to walk on water, and in the midst of a storm and a tempest, he was able to speak peace on the waves of the sea. He was able to open the eyes of the blind, to raise the dead, and to preach with authority, unlike the scribes and the teachers of the law. No doubt his disciples were thinking as Jesus asked them these questions, what is my response when Jesus asked me? Who do I say that this great man, this greatest prophet is? And that's when Jesus turns the conversation from what do other people say? Not what do your friends say, what does your family say, but who do you, my disciples, say that I am? And Jesus, he asked this, and he asked this to all the disciples. And yet it's interesting because only Peter is the one who responds. And he responds correctly. He responds by saying, you are the Christ of God. Christ is the Greek term for the Hebrew Messiah, meaning that he is God's special one, God's anointed one, God's chosen one that he is going to use to redeem his people. This Messiah is the one that all the Old Testament was foreshadowing. They were looking forward to this servant of God who had come to be able to redeem God's people. And not only was Jesus this, but as you look through the rest of Scripture, it makes this very clear if you go throughout the rest of the New Testament. Later on in the very same book of Luke, I love the Gospel of Luke because it has so many different stories in it. And one of my favorite is near the end in Luke 24, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. And the disciples don't know who he is. And as he's walking with them, they are walking with him and he doesn't reveal himself as Jesus to them. They don't realize that. But 
he asks them, what are they talking about? And he eventually gets in a discussion about the scriptures with them. And Luke 24 says that after that, he explained to them how Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them that all the scriptures, the things concerning himself from Moses and the prophets. Because all of Moses and the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in the very opening of his epistle says this, Long ago at many times God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, some of the ones that they expected, like John the, John the Baptist or Isaiah or Elijah. A lot of those old prophets, they said that God was speaking to our fathers by them. Yet in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all, th- of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet this morning, as we sang the song Cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20, elaborates on that. The household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The reason that Jesus is the greatest prophet and that his, his disciples are able to confess him as Christ is because he's not just another person in a long chain of people, going back through the other pages of Scripture. Instead, he is the one that all the Scriptures are pointing to. He is the one that all of these things in the Law and the Prophets were foreshadowing and foretelling. And yet, as we look at this, and as we look at this question of who do you say that I am, a lot of people doubt this. A lot of people wouldn't say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There was a book put out a number of years ago by Sean and Josh McDowell, and in that, they... um, they have a little section called, that they try to basically identify what the logical role of Jesus is. The book is called More Than a Carpenter. If you haven't read it, it's a great book to be able to add to your Christian library. And in that, there's a section where they said, we're going to try to identify who Jesus is because all of the different opinions circulating about him cannot be the same at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. If one is true, the others are false. So with that, they say he is either a liar or he is a lunatic or he is actually Lord whom he claimed to be. And a lot of people, if you go out onto the streets of New York or in your own workplace or if you go to the schools where your kids are learning and you were to ask the people there, who do you think Jesus is, a lot of people will say, oh, he's just a great moral teacher. In fact, that same uh, reference that I used in my introduction, 26% of adults answered that Jesus was a great moral teacher, that that's all he was, that he was just somebody who's up there on the shelf with maybe Gandhi or Muhammad or other people who have had great followings of people and inspired people to follow them. And yet Jesus is different because in this, in this breakdown, in, the, in this role of liar, lunatic, or Lord that Sean and Josh McDowell outline, they say that he cannot be a liar because Jesus himself claimed to be God. And if he, is a, if he is a religious leader trying to teach people about morality and the right way to live and the wrong way to live, how can he himself be a liar in his own identity, claiming to be God when he wasn't? So he couldn't be a great moral teacher if he wasn't God. They said, okay, well, if he's not a liar, then maybe he was crazy. But do you remember the things that Jesus did? Even if you're not, even if somebody's a skeptic and they don't believe the Christian faith, they look at those things. You can't deny that there was a huge following that followed Jesus. That it was something that was documented in antiquity. It was something that caused a movement that has spread around the world and has influenced thousands of people. Yet, usually when we look at lunatics and people who are out of their mind, they don't inspire large groups of followers leaving the final role of Lord as the only logical conclusion for who Jesus is. And yet, are we able to do the same and to be able to see Jesus as the greatest prophet, as Lord, as Christ? 
When things get difficult in our lives and we go through and there's difficult decisions and there's tensions between our own flesh and the world and the devil and Christ, who do we say is the greatest authority? Are we able to see that Jesus is God, that he is the Christ, that he is the one who is the anchor of authority in our life because he is the greatest prophet to ever live? Or is he somebody that we just put on the shelf and we read only when we get into times of crisis or we need him? Or are we like the disciples, and able to affirm that Jesus is the Christ. Earlier I mentioned that all the Old Testament they, law and the prophets, they point to Jesus. And if you go back and look at just some of the passages, are we able to affirm with the Old Testament who they say Jesus is? Are we able to look back at Genesis 3.15 and see Jesus as the seed of the woman that is meant to crush the head of the snake? Are we able to see him as the prophet who was foretold in Deuteronomy 8.15 about a prophet who would be like Moses who would speak to God face to face? Are we able to see him as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, by whose wounds we are healed? Are we able to see him as the shoot from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11? Are we able to see him as the son of David from 2 Samuel 7? And are we able to see, like Daniel 7 says, the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with glory? And finally, with Revelation 5, are we able to affirm that Jesus is our Passover lamb and the lion of the tribe of Judah? Or is he up there on the shelf? And just another religious leader, like all the other ones, collecting dust, waiting for a crisis before we pick up that book. Yet Jesus is more than just our greatest prophet. He is more than just our greatest prophet. He is also our great high priest, which is our second point this morning. Jesus is our great high priest. Look with me at verse 21 and 22. Again, he said, He strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus is in this passage right here. He's foreshadowing the events of the cross, of his Passion Week, when he is going to go to Calvary and die on a cross for the sins of humanity. And as he does that, he fulfills his role as high priest. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that as there is a tension between the righteous wrath of God and the sinful nature of humanity, Jesus himself steps in between God and man and absorbs the punishment and in so doing fulfills the role of a high priest. Second Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And yet... The disciples did not expect Jesus to go to the cross. You and I, we have the benefit of looking at Scripture and saying, hey, we already know the rest of the story. We can look at Paul, we can look at Acts, we can look at the entire rest of the story. But they're living in the midst of the story. They don't know what's going to happen in the future. They've heard Jesus say all these things. But remember, as you go through the Gospels, the disciples usually don't have it all together. Usually they're still figuring things out, which is why we can relate to them so well, especially Peter. And as we go through, as we go through, and as you even think later on, after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he is with his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it's, his disciples ask him, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Because they are again expecting this Messiah, the Christ that Peter has confessed him to be, to be the one who is going to be the conquering king and restore the kingdom of Israel. The Jews were under oppression by the Romans. We don't live in a world where that is a fear. We live in the United States of America. This is something that we have not known. We are not occupied by anybody. But the Jews were under occupation by the Romans. So that means that they were continually looking to, at times, usurp Roman authority and to be able to break the bonds of that occupation. And a lot of people said, Jesus, if you're the Christ, then we are going to follow after you and you are going to be the one to liberate us 
based off of our expectations for Messiah. And yet Jesus is going to come as a conquering king, but that's not the way he came the first time. And yet a lot of times in our lives, it's easy for us to expect one thing, and then in reality, what God is doing is something different. To be able to help illustrate this, uh, two years ago when I first came here to uh, Calvary Church, you guys sent a team to uh, uh, China. And uh, Tom Harris is smiling because he was on the team, as well as a number of other people here at the church. And we went to China, and we were there, and we were able to engage and help with the missionaries there on the ground, and to be able to help them at an international school, at an English-speaking coffee house, to try to be able to get in conversations to be able to share our faith with other people. And yet, as we did this, we were busy most of the week, and there was a translator and a, and a guide with us. Her name was Christina, and she helped our team to be able to navigate the city and to be able to look through all the logistical needs that we had. And one day, Christina wasn't with us, and we were hungry. So naturally, we said, we're going to go out into the city and go get some food. So as we were walking around the city, the place that first caught our eye was a marvelous little spot that looked like a knockoff Burger King called DeWang's. We were a little jet-lagged possibly by this point, so don't judge us too much. But because of that, we decided, you know what, we're just going to go there and try something. Because some people on our team just really wanted the flavor of an American cheeseburger. And the signs and the advertisements, they looked just like an American cheeseburger. They had the fries, they had the soda, they had everything together. And because of that, they, they were expecting the flavor of American beef when they bit in that hamburger. So we go into the joint and we buy a couple burgers and fries and sodas. And we come out and we're sitting in this park and I, and I had remembered from my time in China before that the burgers didn't always taste Western. There's still beef, hopefully, but as you ate them, as you ate them, you'd, you'd say, okay, this is beef, but it's not really flavored the way I want it. It might, it might taste like something completely different. And so I just humbly suggested, maybe guys try to get fried chicken if you're not really sure about the burgers, but some people just really wanted a burger. So we get all of our food, and we go out to a park, and we sit on a bench, and I look over, and uh, Tom Harris got a burger, and uh, he was just really wanting an American cheeseburger, that flavor of American beef. And we were all eating, and he took a bite, and I remember looking over at Tom and saying, hey, Tom, how's, how's that burger? And Tom looked up with this disappointed, disgusted, and dissatisfied look on his face, and he's like, it's, it's not good. It is not good. He was, he was very disappointed. And later on, we had wonderful food most of the time, the rest of the week for the most part. But that was one of the moments where we expected Western American style, and we got something that was not quite that. In the same way that we can have expectations for things to be one way in life, and then reality, be t reality to be completely the opposite, that is what the Jews expected. The Jews expected Jesus to be able, or not Jesus, but the Messiah to be able to come and to be able to be this conquering king who would usher in the new kingdom of Israel and would liberate them from the Romans, and yet the way that Jesus came was a suffering servant, according to Isaiah 53. Still Christ, but he's going to appear two times. And because of this, we weren't, the Jews did not see him as Messiah at first. And yet, Jesus did not come two times just for fun. The first time he came to be able to fulfill his role as high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above heaven. That's pretty specific regarding high priest. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Can you think of a high priest that only offered up one sacrifice? And can you think of a high priest who offered up himself? There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's what he was foretelling his disciples. He, t he strictly commanded them not to tell anybody because they're going to probably go and take him, make him by king by force. But instead, he said, this is what's going to actually happen. Since you know I'm the Christ, it's not going to be a kingdom of reigning this time.
but instead I'm going to come as a suffering servant, and this is the way it's going to happen. And that's the way it did happen. And yet, as Jesus was telling this to his disciples, he offered himself up on the cross once and for all. That means that when Jesus went to the cross, he died for all of our sins. For the ones in the past that we've committed, the ones that we're dealing with right now because we live in a broken world and we're still broken people, and the ones that we are going to deal with in the future. It's not like God has a blind eye and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He knows. And for those who are believers in him, he died for sins past, present, and future. Once and for all, he is not insufficient to save for those who believe in him. And yet, as a kid, when I heard Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that's something that people know. In the people in the survey that I mentioned earlier, most people you don't run into on the streets say, who is Jesus? I've never heard of them. Most people know a little bit about Jesus. And yet, to be able to help illustrate, what does it mean that Christ came to earth and to die for our sins? I want to be able to share with you an illustration from the the Campus Crusade uh, website. They say that there was a story of a particular Native American tribe. And this tribe was suffering from the effects of a very severe drought. Food was scarce, and the members of the tribe were beginning to steal from each other in order to survive. The chief knew that this would be the death of the tribe if people continued to steal whatever they wanted. So he said the next person to be caught stealing would be brought to the center of the village, have their wrists tied, and be publicly whipped to be able to show that you can't steal and break the law and have no consequence. And the next day, sure enough, the thief was caught, and everybody turned up to see who who it was and to witness the punishment. And to everyone's surprise, the thief was the chief's own mother. What was he going to do? As a good chief, he cannot just go against the law that he made the previous day. But at the same time, this is his very own mother. Was he going to condemn her to this punishment? She was an old and frail woman, and this beating could very well kill her. Could he be the cause of that? Which do you think he should do? Which should win, love or justice? And as this story unfolds, the chief made a decision for what he was going to do. He ordered that his mother's wrists be tied to the pole and that the punisher would step forward, whip in hand. But before he gave the commencement of the sentence, he himself stepped in between the man with the whip and his his mother. And he covered her small, frail body with his own broad shoulders. And once her body was completely covered by his own, he said, carry out the sentence. And the cords of the whip fell full brunt on his own back. And he absorbed all of it. And in this story, he was both loving for his own mother and just by accepting the entire sentence of the punishment himself. While this is just a a story, there is striking similarity to our reality here today. In the story, there was a moral law not to steal. And in reality, there is a moral law of God that he has given to us in the Old Testament, summed up in the Ten Commandments. And in the story, if anybody were to be caught breaking that commandment not to steal, there would be punishment. In the same way, if we break the holy law of God, there's going to be consequences for our actions. And in the story, somebody had to be whipped in order to serve as punishment because they had broken the law. And in the same way, in real life, there is a blood payment required to be able to pay for sin. Hebrews 9, 22 says this, without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of life, there is no forgiveness of sin. It is not a small thing in the, act, in the eyes of God. And in the story, the punishment was carried out, but the chief moved in between his mother and the punisher. And in the same way, there was an execute of justice at Calvary, where Jesus stepped in between the righteous wrath of God and our broken, sinful state of humanity. 
And yet Jesus did not just come to die. At the very end of his foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the Passion Week, verse 22, and be raised. Jesus come, did not just come to be able to die as, as our Savior on the cross, but he also was raised to walk in newness of life. He overcame sin, death, hell, and the grave by raising again. This is how he serves as high priest. And not only did he serve once, but Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that he lives to make intercession for those who are believers in him. That means that those who are believers in him are completely covered by the blood of Jesus for all that we have done. And yet the question for you and I today is who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? You might know that Jesus is the great high priest. You might, hear, you might have heard that he went to the cross to forgive mankind for their sins. But is he your great high priest? Not your grandma's, not your son's, not your uncle, not your cousin, not your brother, not your sister. But is he your great high priest? It's a personal decision that we all have to be able to respond to at some point. And yet, like I said, Jesus is not just coming into this world once. He came once as a suffering servant, humbly, giving up himself willingly, not by force. But he is going to come a second time as well. And that brings us to our third point this morning. Our third point is Jesus is our great and coming king. Third point, Jesus is our great and coming king. Look with me at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus, after explaining all these different things and commanding people to take up their cross and follow him, says that he is going to be coming again. He's going to be returning again. The king who came to suffer and die is going to come again. Remember that expectation story that we said about those in China, about the Duang's beef and having misplaced expectations? The expectation of the conquering king that Israel had is not lacking or is not wrong, but it was at the wrong time. When Jesus returns, he is going to be that conquering king. He is going to come again in power, not in weakness, and in righteous wrath, not maliciously, but in truth, to render to all people according to their deeds. And as we look at this, we can look at the Old Testament and see that this is the case. I'm going to look at a couple cross-references. You don't have to turn there, but feel free to write them down. The first is this, Zechariah 14.5. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now this verse, Jesus, when he came to earth the first time, he read the first half. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but then he paused. He closed up the scroll, and he went, and he sat down at the synagogue. He did not finish this verse. Why? Because he was coming to fulfill both of those statements in that passage, but he is coming the first time to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to die on the cross and to be able to allow a way for sinners to be able to be forgiven of sins. But when he comes again, there's going to be a day of vengeance of our God. Revelation 19, 11 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, not in malice, not in hate, not just because he dislikes the world, but in righteousness he judges and makes war. Matthew 24, 30, Then he will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn as they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Just like this passage says, he's going to come in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's going to come again in glory. Yet the reason for this, as Romans 2, 6 says, he will render to each one according to his works. He will render to each one according to his works. That's the reason he is returning. Yet there's a difference 
Not all people are going to be under God's righteous judgment and going to be condemned for their sins. Malachi 4, 1 and 2 says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all the evildoers will be stubble, but, and the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. That's for those who are the evildoers and the wicked, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. There's a difference of destiny for both of these people. And the question is, how did they respond to Jesus when he came the first time? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus came the first time in meekness. And the second time he's going to come in glory. And 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What that means is that we are in a moment right now in the church age where reconciliation with God is, is favorable. There's a time for us to be able to turn to God. There's a time for us to be able to repent. There's a time for us to be able to turn to God. Because you know what I hear a lot of times? When people talk about Jesus coming again, we say, okay, well, Jesus hasn't come back yet, so he probably never will. Because it's been 2,000 years. It's a long time. And we don't stop to think, maybe why hasn't, why hasn't God come back yet? Why hasn't Jesus returned? Is there a reason, or is he just up there taking a nap, waiting for his alarm to go off so he can hit snooze and then wait a couple another decades and then finally to return? No. The reason is this. Look with me at 2 Peter 3 9. 2 Peter 3 9. The, ex- the expression is this. A lot of people say that Jesus is slow as some count slowness in terms of his return. But his will is this that all should seek repentance, that all should reach repentance, as 2 Peter 3 9 says. When people say that God is just a malicious God that's looking to be able to judge and to be able to bring the hammer of judgment down on people because they have lived against him. No, the reason that God has relented judgment, the reason that he came the first time in favor and the second time in judgment is so that people can respond to God, they can believe in him, they can surrender to him in a time where his kingship is favorable so that they are not opposed to him when he comes in power and glory. There is a mercy to our God. There is a patience with our God. For you and I, we are, we are sinners throughout our life, and yet he is patient with us, allowing people to have time to be able to turn to him. Yet again, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time when it is favorable to turn to God. There's an urgency to our faith that a lot of times we forget. D.L. Moody, if you're not familiar with him, is a man who was used of God in mighty ways, and he founded a Bible college and a church in Chicago. He did many other things, but he, being a man of great conviction and of great faithfulness to the Lord, he said that he remembers his single greatest mistake in life. A lot of people carry regrets throughout their life, but he says, I remember my greatest mistake in life. And he said that it occurred on October 1861. If you're a history buff, you might remember the date. On that night in Chicago, Moody addressed one of the largest crowds of his career, and his message was about the Lord's trial based off of Pilate's question, what shall I then do with Jesus? Similar, similar kind of to our question this morning, who do you say that he is? As Moody concluded the, the message, he said, I wish that you can, would seriously consider this subject. For next Sunday, anticipating the time in the future, we will speak about the cross, and, it, and at that time I will inquire, what will you do with Jesus? The congregation sang a closing hymn, probably similar to the way that we sing closing hymns here at Calvary. And yet, the hymn never finished. Because before the singing was over, there was a rush and a roar of fire engines outside. And that was the night of the great Chicago fire. Have you ever been to Chicago and you've seen the area that was destroyed by the fire? It's huge. The reason they call Chicago the second city is because it was completely burnt to a crisp. 
The next day, Chicago lay in ashes. And Moody, speaking about this, about this moment, he said this, I have never since dared to give an audience a week to think about their salvation. Now, I'm not an all-knowing guy. I'm a 25-year-old youth pastor. I don't have it all together. I don't have everything figured out. But as we go forth into this world, we don't know what the future holds for us. We do not know what the future holds. Now, I'm not saying that anything bad is going to happen to you. I hope that it doesn't. I hope that things go well. When we pray here at prayer meetings, when we pray for the congregation, we pray for nothing but good things to be able to happen to people. But yet, at the same time, we do not know what the future holds. And we do not know when our time is going to be finished. Again, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be able to live for God, to put him as the highest priority in our life, and not to put him off until a crisis or maybe he comes back and then we respond to him. Yet, like I said, Jesus hasn't responded yet. He hasn't. So what are we supposed to do right now? What are we supposed to do right now? And that brings us to our fourth and final point this morning. What Jesus commands us to do. What Jesus commands us to do. Look with me at verses 23, 24, and 25. After he said to all, after this he said it to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus opens this section with a conditional statement. He knows that not all people are going to follow after him. He understands that. But he says, if anyone would follow after me, there's a couple of things that they must do. First, they must deny themselves. That's something that's not easy to do. You're driving and somebody's trying to merge in front of you. I bet your first inclination, just like mine is, is to politely let them go right in front of you without any problem whatsoever. Yielding to them. That's right, yielding in Jersey. But no, it's not. Our, our default position as human beings is to assert our own position of authority and say, no, I deserve to be in front of you. I'm going to get there of half a second before you, and that's not going to matter at all when I get to my destination, but I have to go before that one car. Why? Because we all, myself included, we like to put ourselves first and have ourselves in the center. And what Jesus is saying that we have to be able to deny ourselves. We have to deny our own passions, our own desires, our own hopes, our own dreams, all the things that we hold to and say, this is my life, this is all the things in my plan or my hopes or my passions or my desires, this is all what it is. And Jesus is saying that all those things not all of them have to go, but they all have to yield to God. Nothing can come before God in our life. If there's anything in our life that we say, I would not be able to live without this, then we have to yield that to God. It doesn't mean that good things in our life we can never partake of, but it does mean that all those things in our life, they have to yield to God, because he is Lord, not the aspects of our life. And yet Jesus, he commands that, but not only do we deny them, but we also are called to be able to take up our cross daily and follow him. Taking up our cross involves the idea of dying to ourselves. Not only do we deny our old way of life, but we put it to death. Galatians 5.24 says this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh along with his passions and desires. That means that as we walk through life, we still have a sinful nature that's going to try to pull us away from God. And as we say, I want to follow after God and give him priority and preeminence in our lives, we have to say, I'm going to put, to put to death in my life the things that are going to pull me away from God, the things that are going to trip me up, the things that are going to weigh me down as I try to run this race following after Jesus. We have to be able to put ourselves to death. When I was in high school, I came across a verse called in uh, Galatians 2.20. It's a very powerful verse. 
And Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing in this, speaking of this death to his old self and newness of life and following Jesus in his new self. And as he does, as he does this, he, he speaks as follows. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh and I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Yet take this verse for a second and instead of putting Paul's name or Paul's pronouns in there, put your own name. Put your own name in there. For me, it would read like this. Jason has been crucified with Christ and is no longer Jason who lives, but Christ who lives in Jason. And the life that Jason now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved Jason and gave himself up for him. Now don't go in your Bibles and write Jason in your name. It's not the way that it's supposed to work. Go home and put your own name in that. Put your own name in that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've surrendered to him, then you have died to your old self and you're walking in new life with him. That's how we're supposed to be able to walk, dying to our old self. And the last thing he calls us to do is to follow him. In 1 John, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God has given us a love letter from him, understanding what it means to be able to walk through life, to live in obedience to him. Jesus came not to be able to give you a difficult life that's just going to be problematic and he's trying to make your life difficult. A lot of people think that. A lot of times we say, God, you just want to make my life, you know, spiritual, but really difficult. But John said in, in John 10.10, 10, the Gospel of John, Jesus, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. The fullest, the best possible life that we could have, that I could have, that you could have, is not the life where we take our dreams, passions, and pursuits and desires and put them as the forefront in our life. The best possible life is when we give everything in our life to submission to God and yield to his will in every aspect of our lives. That's not easy, but that's the best possible life that we can have. And as we start to be able to follow after Jesus, we experience joy. We ex begin to experience the fruits of the Spirit in our life, and we begin to grow and mature in our faith in him. And yet, as we do that, that means that if, we're, that if we're believers in him, that means that we suffer for and we are burdened by things of the kingdom instead of our own things. Instead of going through our day worrying about our own image, our own finances, our own social circles, those things, they have their place but they're not to occupy the center portion of our lives. The center, the throne of our life, is reserved for one person, or should be reserved for one person, and that's Jesus Christ. We're supposed to follow after him. And verses 24 elaborate on what that means. For whoever would save his life, would try to hold on to it, life is what it means, will lose it. They can't keep it. We're all going to die one day. But whoever loses his life, gives up his life for Jesus' sake, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Friends, eternity is no place to have regrets. Eternity is no place to be able to get to and say, you know what, I wish I would have started living for Jesus earlier. I wish I, should, I could have surrendered this aspect of my life to them. I wish I could have done this differently. We're not going to be perfect, but at the same time, let's live for Jesus now. Let's yield to him now. Let's invest in his kingdom now. Let's do the difficult work of following Jesus now rather than going into eternity wishing that we had done more. There was a, a missionary and martyr, some of you might have heard of him, Jim Elliott. He was a man who went down to South America to work with some of the unreached tribes in South America. And his life ended when a spear went through his chest cavity. And yet he said this regarding the gospel. He or she is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'm going to read it again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, life, to gain that which he cannot lose, eternal life. 
We can't take anything from this world with us into eternity, but we can gain everything by being in Christ. And to be able to help illustrate this point, I came across a poem, and I don't really like poetry, but I want to be able to share this with you. It's from the, Christ, the uh, Pilgrim Gospel Messenger. It says this, One day I was fast asleep. I had this stirring dream. I was caught up to be with God, with angels that did seem. And while up there, I met God's saints from many parts of earth. Now some were great and famous men, yet some of humble birth. I talked to one great saint of God, the first one I had met. He told me how he died for Christ. His words I can't forget. He lived, he said, in Bible days and died at Nero's stake. It was a joy for me to give my all and burn for Jesus' sake. I was glad to die for Christ with humble words, he said, but as I listened to it all, I bowed my guilty head. Another man then gently spoke, Here is my story, friend. T'was cannibal that took my life because I would not bend. I tried to tell those heathen souls of Christ who came to die. They ate my flesh and drank my blood, but sent my soul on high. Of course, up here are millions more with stories rare and true. But friend, before I tell you more, let's hear your story too. I'm ashamed of how I failed. I've known no sacrifice. I'm ashamed of how I've failed. I've paid such little price. I'm ashamed. I've never even given funds to send the gospel out. I have lived a life of luxury, and I have never done without these costly cars, these extra clothes seem needless now in vain. The very thought of how I'd lived now fills my heart with pain. Just then it seemed that Jesus said, take up my cross today. I'll give you another chance to live and work and pray. My guilty heart began to burn. My nervous body shook. Then, then I awoke with tear-filled eyes with new resolve to make. I told the Lord that from that day forth, my best, my all I'd give to win the lost in every place for this alone I'd live. I told the Lord that, that from then on I would not waste a dime, that I would really give myself to prayer and really use my time. That I would, use, that I would seek with all my heart that power from above to help me tell a heathen world of Jesus' grace and love. That's a powerful poem right there. Powerful. And in light of that, I thought, how am I suffering for Christ? How am I suffering for Christ? Not all of us are called to be pastors or missionaries or martyrs. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to do a guilt trip where everybody says, I want to go here or there or whatever. That's not the purpose of this. My goal is to be able to say, we're all called to take up our cross and follow after Jesus. How are you doing it? How am I doing it? How are all of us doing it? Are we suffering for God's kingdom? Or do we only suffer our own decision, our own opinion, and our own pleasure? Which of the two are we? And like that poem said, as Jesus said, I'm going to give you another chance today to really use your time to be able to invest in his kingdom. The good news is that we still have time on this earth. No matter who we are, no matter what background we've come from, no matter our gender, no matter anything, God is still able to work with us and use us for his kingdom and glory. Look at through the Bible. We don't have time to be able to go through the whole Old Testament and New Testament, but look at all the people. Is there any one person that had everything together, that had everything clearly lined up and organized and perfect and didn't have any fault in their lives? No, God is able to work through all those things. Not so that we can continue to indulge in them, so that we might be able to be used for God despite our weakness and despite our imperfection. And again, coming back to our question that Jesus opened in this passage to his disciples. 
who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who are you able to say that he is in your heart, in your life? Are you able to say that he is the greatest prophet, he's the one who is the highest source of authority, that when truth comes and tensions come in life and the storms and the waves of the sea come up and you are fearful and I am fearful and things are difficult, are we able to say that we have an anchor of authority in Jesus Christ because he is the greatest source of authority and truth? Is he your great and high priest? Like I said earlier, is he not those in your family? Do you not know about him as a great moral teacher? But is he your great high priest? The one who mediated the wrath of God by sacrificing himself. Is he your great and coming king? Are you somebody that's like Jerry Capazzi that is excited for Jesus Christ to be able to come back because you can't wait to be with him one day? Or is he your great and coming judge and that's a day that you fear and hope that you will never see? And what does Christ command us to do? Are we investing in God's kingdom instead of our own? Are we putting to death our old way of living, our old desires and following after Jesus and going without things so that we might be able to invest in his kingdom? Or do we take every opportunity to put our own opinion and desire as priority number one? Christ went to the cross before he came in judgment. God is a loving God. He went to the cross first. He appeared as a suffering servant to be able to forgive us of our sins before he comes in judgment. And today, if you're a sinner and you're somebody that's saying, I realize that I'm a broken person and that there's more to life than this. If you're somebody that looks out into the world and you say there must be more than trade wars and wars and natural disasters and difficulties, there must be something better than this. There is. And if you're somebody that's saying and looking at yourself and saying, I want to be able to have somebody else in charge of my life because I have made a complete mess of my life, then I have good news for you today. And that Jesus is able to mend all of us and to be able to forgive all of us. And this isn't to guilt trip anybody, but if you're somebody and you say, I want to be able to follow after Jesus today and you've never done that before, then I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment and I invite you, if that is your will, if it's the, the, the sincere desire of your heart to be able to follow after Jesus, then I invite you to pray it with me. Before I do, I'm going to read one last scripture and then I'll be done. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I can't see your heart. Those around you can't see your heart. I might be able to hear you utter a prayer, but the only person who knows your heart is God. So that means that as Christians, we are not people that say, Jesus is my Savior because I gave him lip service and just prayed a prayer one time, but my heart wasn't in it. No, in order for Jesus to be your Savior, he also has to be your Lord. In order for him to be able to forgive us of all of our sins, he also has to be the one in charge of our lives that we are yielding to and following afterward. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that the two go together. They're intertwined. We can't separate one from the other. And if you're somebody today that's saying, I don't want to just get an insurance card for hell, but I want to truly be able to surrender to Jesus, to have my sins forgiven as my Savior, and to be able to have him be the Lord of my life for the rest of my days, so help me God. Then I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, forgive me for I am a sinner. Would you cleanse me of my sin? And would you be the Lord of my life for the rest of my days? I believe you, Jesus, are truly Lord and that God raised you from the dead. Save me, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.